If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. So, the self uh, is an illusion, or so neuroscientists and philosophers would have us believe. This week, our speakers ask, is the self an illusion? Even if we had a plausible account of how such a complex illusion could evolve, our inner experience is undeniable. So is dismissing the self a mistake? Or can science actually eradicate the self? And if it can, how do we then make sense of who we are? Taking on these questions, we have a stellar lineup. We are joined by co-founder of The Philosopher's Magazine and author of many best-selling books, including The Ego Trick, Julian Bagini, author of Ineffability and its Metaphysics, and professor at the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy, Sylvia Jonas, professor of Buddhist philosophy at the University of Oxford, and author of 12 Examples of Illusion, Jan Westerhoff, and last but not least, author and novelist of award-winning books, including A Field Guide to Reality, Joanna Kavanagh. If you're left with more questions after this week's debate, why not check out episode 141 on why is there something rather than nothing? This debate takes you into the idea of consciousness and the self, and our speakers ask where this might come from. After you've listened to the episode, please do head to iTunes and give us a rating or review so you can hear your views on this week's debate. And do make sure you've subscribed on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. Back now to Hilary Lawson, who hosts this week's debate. And um, uh, Julian is going to kick off. Yeah, thanks, Hilary. Well, I mean, the self is, is there are illusions about the self, for sure. Um, this, this, the idea that the self ha- is this kind of singular thing with an enduring essence unchanging in life, which is how often, often perhaps seems to us, but not always, is an illusion. But I mean, the self isn't an illusion in other ways which are really important. I think it's quite obvious there is something called the self. And in a way, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising to us that what the self turns out to be is like a collection of parts and psychological and physical parts rather than being singular, because that's what everything is, right? So. I think we might talk more about that later, but then the sub-theme here is, is this denial of the self, which seems to be extremely fashionable, particularly amongst neuroscientists, is that driven by this desire to see the world in materialist terms? I don't think it's quite like that. I think there are two, one thing that's going on here is that I do think the culture has somehow internalized the view that the only real explanations of things are scientific explanations. So if scientists look for the self 
and don't find it, and then announce that therefore the self is an illusion. There is this kind of like you know, genuflection to, towards them. It says, well, OK, you must be right. Scientists have told us. And I think that's a kind of elevation of the capacity of science to solve all problems and to give scientific answers to everything. But one reason why I think that you can't just say the desire to deny the self is the product of this seeking after materialist universe is that one of the earliest denials of self, although I question what that means, comes from Buddhism, as I'm sure we are here earlier in, in the Buddhist view. The Buddhist view wasn't about trying to deny, uh, trying to embrace materialism. I think actually it was rather in the context of what the Buddha saw escaping from suffering. Life is suffering, right? Life is uh, unsatisfactoriness. And uh, actually, part of this, in, within that worldview, the idea that we could see ourselves as lacking a permanent, enduring essence is actually a, a liberating thought because it gives us some hope that for, life is so difficult. There's something actually deeply comforting in thinking, actually, there isn't this self, this I, which must endure it forever. So there's a kind of existential nihilism, perhaps, which is bizarrely comforting. I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. My impression is that uh, discussions about the self are often uh, framed in a slightly blurry way and that there are different ways in which we can understand the self to, be, uh, to begin with. So there is one sense in which the self is a sort of essence of our personality and then the question is, um, can we change that essence or not? There is a different sense in which the self might be this physical entity that scientists are looking for, perhaps located in our brain. Um, there is a more philosophical sense of the self as a metaphysical entity, and a metaphysical entity is different from a physical entity in that it doesn't necessarily need to have spatiotemporal uh, properties. And then there is a fourth way of understanding the self as an epistemic concept, as something marking a sort of uh, epistemic restriction in the way we can look out into the world. And I think depending on which senses of the self we're talking about, our answer to the question whether the self is an illusion will differ. Now, I think there is one clear sense in which the self is, in fact, indispensable to our inner lives. And that is the sense implied in uh, what philosophers call the concept of indexical knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge we need in order to locate ourselves here at a particular place at a particular time. So there is a famous thought experiment uh, by John Perry featuring uh, a character named Rudolf Lingens. Rudolf Lingens is lost in the Stanford Library, and it so happens that he has also lost his memory. He's an amnesiac, and he wanders the library, and he um, reads books, and he happens to read a biography of himself. So he ends up reading everything about his causal history, everything about his physical properties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and the idea of the thought experiment is to say that, um, or to show that, no matter how much propositional knowledge Rudolf Lingwin's piles up. It is a different kind of knowledge he needs in order to realize that he himself is Rudolf Lingwin's. And this, the kind of self that is necessary for this kind of knowledge, to, the, that is necessary to self-ascribe properties, that is the one that I think implies a self. And how we understand that self is, of course, a different question. And I'm going to end my short pitch with just the statement that in in terms of philosophy, the fact that a certain entity seems to be indispensable uh, to our best theories of explaining a particular phenomenon can be um, 
a sort of hint that that entity actually exists in what, whatever way. <laughs> thank you, Sylvia. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, <coughs> I think <coughs> the question whether the self is illusory or not, and the question whether everything that exists is material are two completely different questions and completely separate questions, insofar as we can argue that the self is not fundamentally real or that the self is just an illusion independent of our answer to the question whether everything is material. So for example, even if I do believe that there are irreducibly mental events or mental substances in the world, I can still assume that the self is only an illusion. Okay, and so how do we do that? Well, the self is presumably some sort of object that consists of parts. We've got memories and thoughts and emotions and all that mental stuff and all that comes together in ourselves. Now, if we assume that if you, whenever you have a complex that is part that has parts, only the parts are real, but the whole is not real, then there goes the self. In the same way in which I can say, okay, so this table consists of the, of the, of the top bit and then the four legs, all of those are real, but the whole thing, the table isn't real. The, the table is just, um, we might call a superimposition, or if you want, an illusion on top of that stuff, right? And you can have, run exactly the same argument for mental things, you can say, well, the self is not real. There are all these kind of psychological things happening in time. They are real, but the self is just a superimposition on top of those. So to that extent, the self would just be an illusion. However, I think the important caveat to keep in, keep in mind here is that there can be illusions which are very useful. Yeah? And uh, the self is certainly a useful illusion if you, you know, have to get out of bed in the morning and have to, have to incorporate all your motor processes into one coherent whole, you know, get the alarm clock and things like that. Um, so saying that the self is an illusion doesn't mean that it doesn't have practical purposes. I mean, the only problem with an illusion is once you start to take them philosophically seriously, then the problems start to kick in, right? So if you are aware that the self is an, is an illusion and keep it at that, then that's probably fine. But as soon as you think, you know, there's something more to it, there's some kind of metaphysical soul palette somewhere lurking in the background, that's, that's where the problems start. Okay. Thank you. Joanne. Thank you. Um, so I think this debate, we're having it because of this dualist tradition, um, which kind of courses through, you know, from the ancient world onwards, whether the mind is different from the body, whether the immaterial is different from the material, um, how we might understand them. And you get Descartes in the 17th century kind of creating a great Yalta of this debate, really dividing the mind from the body and just letting them have kind of visiting rights with each other through the pineal glands. And so that's a sort of big moment. Um, and today, actually, we have a slightly different, in the, in the debate that this, um, this talk is referencing, there's a kind of division where the metaphor's been truncated. We just have the materialist notion, and the sort of immaterial aspects have been kind of cut off. And that causes trouble in language. And I think when you hear the kind of pronouncements that we're responding to um, in certain communities in science, not all, of course, they sound like this. They sort of say, I know there is no self. Um, I think there is no such thing as the self. Um, I believe that nobody in this room ever had a self. That's what you kind of hear. And if we just put myself in these, they sound really odd. You know, I myself believe that nobody in this room has a self. And you start to think, well, if there is no self, then how can the self say that it is not? You know, presumably the self saying there is no self is not there. Or can a non-real entity make a real statement? That would be quite weird. That would be an odd thing to happen. Or is there a sort of a totally real reality that this unreal entity can understand and communicate to other unreal entities? So there's a whole linguistic problem that's quite important. And I think hopefully we'll talk about that more. Um, but for a really different reason, I would like to say um, that there's no such thing as the self. Um, in the same way that Lawrence Durrell 
a novelist said there's no such thing as the novel, which you might think is a weird thing for a novelist to say. But he meant that every really interesting novel is completely sui generis. It's totally unique because it's the creation of an absolutely unique person in a totally unique moment in time, and it's unrepeatable. And so there are novels, there's an infinite array. And I think with something even more important, such as lives on Earth, far more important than the mere novel, there's an idea that I'd like to advance of an infinite array of selves that we incorporate in ourselves, and also a myriad array of people having experiences that are real to them. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. So I'd like to begin just by exploring what we mean by the illusion of the self or the non-existence of the self. And I wasn't quite clear from your introduction, Julian. Are, are, you, are you clearly on the, the self-doesn't-exist side of this argument? No, absolutely not. I mean, so I, think I, th <laughs> and I think this is the sort of the, the, the problem, really. And it's odd, because I've, I've written a whole book about it in which I thought I was quite clear, and yet people would... <laughs> <laughs> No, but people would still, people, I'm not saying you should have read it, but people, people who've read it and heard me talk about it say, oh, I like, your, I, like, I like your book in which you said self was an illusion. And I said, no, no, I mean, but I suppose the point is this, it's like, it goes back, you know, what do we mean by an illusion? That, look, some people say an illusion is not something that doesn't exist, it's something that isn't what it seems to be. And in that sense, the self is an illusion. I'm happy with that. If that's the way you want to define illusion, I think that's fine, because I don't think the self is as it appears to be, in the sense that this... I is a much more messy and contradictory and incoherent thing than it seems to itself because we're you know and the psycho this is where I think psychological research has actually been useful with this debate it actually makes clear the extent to which there's a lot of like tidying up that goes on in our experience but actually if you actually attend to yourself carefully I think this is one of the things that you know Buddhism got people to do early on attend carefully your own experience and you'll discover it's not something that is completely in your control things are right thoughts arise feelings arise and so forth but i see no problem in thinking that this rather messy collection is still a remarkably ordered collection in some ways is a thing in the same way like the table i mean this is what Leanne was saying we could say the table is an illusion but that seems to me hyperbole right it's just an exaggeration it it it, it, it exists there, there are there are component parts and there are holes that are made up of them they're both equally real in that way. So, so I don't so want to say it's an, it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a, it, it, you can you could yeah. you could define illusion in that way if you want. I just think that's exaggeration. It, that's not what people. So, so to the neuroscientists who want to say that you know, there isn't a self, you think they're wrong in that sense. You want to say that there is a self just in the sense in which there is a table. Well, in a slightly more complex sense, the organisation of the self is much, much more complex than the table. And it's a fluid thing as well. That's the other important thing. But it thing. exists. That's like there it, is exists. A it is a self. It exists. So you're putting yourself a, yeah. on the Cartesian side of this. No, uh, not the Cartesian side. Because as Jan says, it's not about actually the... Um, it's, not a, it's not the ontological debate about what kind of substances there are. I mean, I can be completely ontologically um, agnostic whether or not the, the world is entirely material. I might be like Bishop Barclay. Everything is mental. That's not the key point. The key point is that whatever the self, whatever the self is fundamentally made of, it is this ordered collection and a, a dynamic collection which moves and changes over time. Um, so I'm not on the Cartesian side because Descartes thought okay, the self was a, as yeah. a singular entity which has an unchanging essence and is indivisible. That's wrong. Okay. Yeah. So, Ian, what, what do you think on this? Is it, what is the case against the self? 
Yeah, I think we'll, we'll have to distinguish here the two, two different views. I mean, one is the kind of the sole pellet view mm. that, that Julian was just mentioned, where, where we have a, a substantial entity that is indivisible and eternal and essentially us and perhaps also immaterial and somehow interacts with our body, right? Mm. So that is very hard to make sense of mm. in most understandings of how we know that the mind works and the brain and the mind interact, right? If we, if we keep it in ontologically neutral terms, right? But then there's the, the, the follow-up question is, okay, so if we rule out that conception of the self, that doesn't mean that there are no other conceptions of the self that might be viable or might be useful in some, to some extent, right? So, to, to, and I think that was, that was the point Julian was making, is that to, to some extent, of course, the self is an integrated whole in the same way in which this table is an integrated whole. It's not just a mess of atoms here in front of us, but, but it's something that is structured in itself. And because it is structured, it can fulfill certain functions like you know, supporting those glasses. In the same way, this, the self is not just a random stream of mental bits, but they're all linked together in a causal stream with one another. And that's why they can fulfill certain functions. Mm -hmm. right? But the, this thing is not um, uh, indivisible. It's not outside of time. It is not atomic, mm -hmm. and it's probably also not essential to what we are insofar as its properties are always changing, right? Mm -hmm. So you can get some conception of the self which is very, very far from the, you know, the soul pellet Cartesian idea, but that doesn't mean that that's not a conception of the self. It is just a, a self by a different name. Very well put. I agree with you. <coughs> so, so uh, in fact, both of you are really arguing for a self in exactly the same way that there is a... You know there are objects in the world that, that, that there is a self. So, so you would take issue with the neuroscientists who deny this. Well, look, you could also have a physicist who tells you there's no table here, right? And in fact, there's not even anything solid here. This is sure. mainly empty they, they space. Could. They yeah. could, but yeah. you would take issue with neuroscientists yeah. who would. Deny well, I mean, that. As in the same way in which you're as comfortable with the idea of the self as an existent thing in the same way as you're comfortable with the idea of the table being existing. They're the same same sort of thing. There is a self. Uh, it's not a. It's not a. Um, well, it's not an illusion. Well, I think there is a useful way of describing the world that incorporates table, and also a useful world, way of describing the world that um, incorporates selves, right? But I don't think that's the fundamental. The, that's the fundamental theory of how the world ticks, right? So if we if we if we believe that there is such a thing as an ultimate reality of the world, or an ultimate ultimately true theory of the world, mm. then I think neither selves nor tables feature on that. Right. Yeah? But that doesn't mean that there isn't perfectly true and viable theory such that things feature, such that selves and table feature in that theory is just not the ultimate one. I'll perhaps go, go slightly further though than that, which is I don't really buy this idea of like on some ultimate description of the world there is no, I mean, what is this? Oh, we're talking now of the thing in itself, which, you know, Kant said was unknowable. There, every, every description of the world, every understanding of the world would always be from some kind of viewpoint, even if it's God's viewpoint. And I, I, I think what I reject is the, this privileging of the subatomic as that's real and everything else is kind of secondary. You know, I'm afraid, you know, subatomic parts are very, very real and they're very important for explaining the way the world works. But the, the other things which are amalgams of them are just as real. They may not be as fundamental in the sense of, you know, they, in the sense of the ontological sense of what things are made of, but they're no less real. And I, I, I think I find it bizarre in a way that we, we, we seem so inclined to, to take this assumption that reality is a word which should be only reserved for the uh, most fundamental constituting elements of society. It's a bit like saying that uh, in a piece of music, the only real things are the individual notes. And the piece of music itself 
isn't real. Well, I'm afraid they're both real. And, you know, I don't... It drives me mad, sorry. Okay, so, <laughs> interesting. So, Sylvia, are you comfortable with the sort of self that Julian and Jan are describing, or do you want to couch it in different terms? So I, I noticed, again, um, something that I said earlier, that it seems to me that there are different ideas of the self in play here. And between what the two of you just said, it sounded to me like there was this one very much physical sense, the self in the sense that neuroscientists can discover. And then there is a slightly more metaphysical sense, Jan, in the, in the way you described um, using the, I believe it was a, uh, was it a river mat metaphor? Well, a causal, causal, well, causal sequence or causal stream, yeah. Right, yeah, and then yeah. what you were saying was, well, it's, it's none, of the, none of the single elements mm. of yeah, that yeah, stream yeah, yeah, that constitutes yeah, self. Yeah. Rather, it's just something mm. that connects yeah. these different um, yeah. elements. And so then I suppose my question would be, well, what, so what's that? What is the connecting factor between these different elements? And then maybe that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the self. And from, from a philosophical point of view, it's perfectly fine to find it interesting to, 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 to ask the question what that could be. Well, maybe it's something that lies beyond the grasp of the empirical sciences, um, but that doesn't mean that the thing doesn't exist, perhaps, in a different sense of existence. But yeah, so I'm, I think I'm happy with uh, metaphysical um, entity that is the self, and that might actually turn out to be something mm. more structural than sort of uh, solid and physical. Mm. So, uh, so I'm not so happy with the, with the physical self. So, so, so is there something that holds the bits together? You know, the, you, we have this bundle of properties. Mm. Are we happy with the bundle? Does there need to be something that sticks it together? Yeah, there is, and that's 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 the causal relation, right? So, I mean, one of the one of the Buddha's uh, fav favorite favorite metaphors for the for the, the mind and the self is is a flame or candle flame, right? So, what is a candle flame? A well, candle flame is a process, right? So, you have a specific process that that uh, that happens when the when when whatever is burnt burnable is ignited. And that continues until whatever uh, fuel you have goes out of existence. And that looks like some kind of entity, but in fact, what is there? It's a continuously changing process that looks like a constant flame, right? And what, so what connects the different bits or the different, different moments of the flame? Well, it's the causal process, right? So that each previous moment of burning causes the next one until there's nothing more and then it stops, right? So to that extent, I think we can, we can perfectly well agree that we, we, have a, you know, we, have, we have a causally connected stream there on which we superimpose this conception of a self. It, it might just be the case that we miss superimpose <laughs> wrong ideas on it. For example, if we think that this thing is fundamentally unchanging and doesn't have any parts and is always the same as our essence, then if we reflect more deeply on what it actually is, we realize that it's illusory in such a way that it appears one way, namely essentially unchanging, but in fact is in a complete, exists in a completely different way, namely as always changing. Right? So to that extent, it's illusory in this kind of Weak, weaker sense. It's not illusory in saying that there's nothing there in the same way in which they have a ca candle flame there. It's just that this is not an, uh, a substance. So, Julian, is there something that holds the properties together? Is there something that holds, holds them together? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the, the language here could be misleading. I mean, there's no, as it were, additional thing, if you mean a, a substance. So, for example, we, you know, we know water is H2O, and we don't think, oh, there's the hydrogen and there's the oxygen, and there's also this thing called water, which is how it all sticks together. No, we understand it's those things in appropriate relation. I suppose what I find interesting, and I'm slightly agnostic about, when I, when I wrote the book I talked about earlier, perhaps I hadn't done as much on, on Asian philosophy, non-Western philosophy, 
I kind of was privileging the, the atomic elements. I was thinking more about that. I wasn't thinking about enough about the reality of, of the relations. And I think that's the point. They're, so so the, they're, they're the experiences and the memories and so forth, and they are related together. And it's the relations and the elements together which make us who we are. And I think the relations are at least as real as the elements, but they're not the same kind of thing, I think, as, as you know, atoms and, 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 and units of experience. I, I wouldn't say I have a final, fully worked out view on that. But. <laughs> so I was wondering whether you, so you seem to be there saying the, um, the thing that holds the bits together is the relations between the bits. Is that right? Think, things, you, things, you, are, things, are things are things are ontological position. Things are there are relations things, which things are, are real. Things are in relation, and relations are real. But I mean, they're yeah. not they're not things sticking things together. It's yeah. not like you know. It's like that. Take the hydrogen and, and you know the water atom thing. Yeah. It's not like you know they're these little connecting rods <laughs> between them, like you'd get on a little model. But they clearly are held in relation, and they're held in relation. And the reason they're held in relation is partly because of their own nature, and partly because of the nature of everything else around it. So yeah, there's that kind of holistic element that's perhaps missing in the atomistic view. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, I think for the core thing is, I don't, you know, we'd have to wait till final answers on these deep questions to get a good sense of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think that we get a clear enough sense of, you know, I'm, I, I'm happy enough to think of myself as comprising of these, you know, these particular mental events, experience, etc., which are in appropriate relation with each other, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with the fact that I can't spell out exactly how that process works, et cetera, et cetera, because that's clearly, that seems to me pretty undeniably uh, the case. And you don't need to sort of be able to explain exactly how it entirely works necessarily to, to, to be convinced of that, I don't think. Okay, th thank you. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I was going to come to Joanna, but maybe that's a good point to transition to the, the next stage of the uh, debate, to look at, as it were, in, in some sense, the case for the self and the relationship between the, the self and experience. Do, does experience have a... Does, it, does experience provide a different sort of glue than the relational description that we were having from Julian there? Is, is there something about experience which means that self is different? Yes, so w fundamentally we have this paradox, which is that you know, we're these selves trying to develop a theory of the self. And so there's that massive paradox that you're trying to, you know, it's like trying to develop a theory of language in language. You know, there's a huge problem that you're in the thing you're trying to describe and understand. And so there are many, many theories of the self that sort of try to extract some other meaning of a self or the selves than the one that you experience. You almost you're told that your actual experience is not real. And that's the theory, again, this idea that, you know, the brain is giving you an illusion that you're here. You know, it's doing that to sort of make you happy. Um, and this comes with all sorts of massive problems. Why would the brain, who, who on earth is the brain for a start? Why would the brain be doing that? And also, if they're giving you an illusion that you're here to make you happy, 
then why would they then start to give you the thought that actually that's an illusion? I mean, that starts to get really weird. What's, what's this brain doing? Is it part of a sort of crazy, demonic, super entity that's trying to mess with us all? You know, what's going on? So these sort of theories, I think, that are totally opposed to our experience in the world are very curious. And, and Mary Midgley made this point. You know, there's absolute experience that we have. We're here. We know not why. We've been inducted into this strange reality. We're here in this moment. We've been given this language. It's pretty weird. We've been taught it without actually asking, without you know, being consulted about whether we want to learn it. And we talk to ourselves in this language too, which is even more strange. We communicate internally using this kind of imposed thing that we've been given. And yet we have this tangible, utterly distinct experience. And we communicate with other selves who are doing that too. So there's an incredible, strange, rather alchemical continuity of this experience of being. And that's what William James was talking about. He said, you know, that experience is empirical data. You want to talk about data, you know, you want to be sort of scientific, quasi-scientific. He said, you know, your experience is data. It's the thing that you know, and it's the thing you amass in the world. So yes, I think it's extremely important. I think we should always be quite suspicious of and, and skeptical of theories that say everything you think's going on is not happening. That's actually what happens to Winston Smith in 1984. You know, that's the absolute problem that he has, that he, throughout the novel, says, my subjective experience is real, at least. They can't take that away. And then, of course, he's tortured into accepting, in the end, that actually it's not real, and 2 plus 2 equals 5, and he can see five fingers when O'Brien holds up a hand with four fingers. So I think it's a really fundamental aspect of our being in the world, yeah. Is experience a, 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 a problem for the bundle view of the self? I don't see how it would be a problem because uh, yeah, the, it, it, it is a given. Any theory of the self has to, and except one that denies it, has to accept that in one way or another there is experience. So it, the, the question comes in, what is the nature of the thing that is experiencing? And, uh, you know, so, and, and I think that to conclude that the, the thing experiencing is not a single Undivided thing, but it's a kind of a system, if you like, um, is, is counterintuitive because, partly because of language, actually. I mean, you talk about this in, in, you know, in the indexical thing about it. You know, you have this problem is that I think, you know, I think therefore I am, whatever it is, that you can't help but assert the I, even to deny the I exists. But that creates the idea that therefore the I must be real, which is kind of true. But then it, it, the, the, the mistake is to then assume that that I has to be some singular entity. It isn't. We have to use I. The I is real. But what its fundamental nature is, is open for debate. But I do agree that, you know, you can't, there is something undeniable about experience which makes the denial of self in absolute sense absurd. I, I mean, I don't believe anybody seriously believes they're having a debate with you. You're disagreeing. I believe the self is real. I, you believe it doesn't. Do they really not believe that there are two people having that conversation in an important, non-trivial sense? That's the point. I may be very deeply mistaken about the nature of my own self. That is a possibility. But to, to, to believe there is no self there at all, debating with the other self that, where there is one there, I think that's, you know, I, I don't believe anyone argues that with sincerity. Oh, was it one of the, one of the American uh, yeah. fragmentists? Uh, no one argues yeah. that with sincerity. I thought that right, was right. your position. Well, well, no, no, well, uh, well I think, I, yeah, okay, right, sorry. Yeah, uh, so I, I think, the, 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 again, two, two different positions here. I think what the one thing is, is the question, okay, so when, you, when you're debating with somebody else, is there another mind there, right? Mm. So, and then, then um, if you deny that, and of course you get into the solipsist position, 
uh, where you say, okay, that's only me and my, my experience, and this, this is the whole of existence, right? And I, I wouldn't say there is nobody saying who argues for that, but there are very, very few. So mm -hmm. I think for the, and this is kind of a separate debate because I don't think that is what we're arguing about here. I don't think we're, we're arguing about pro and cons of solipsism. We are arguing about pro and cons of the assumption of the self, mm -hmm. right? But we can be in, perfectly be in a situation where you're talking to another person and you don't think there are any selves in the room, right? You're just saying, okay, so there's one connected set of mental events here and they are sort of more intrinsically causally connected, causally connected than that other set of mental events that's over there. They are also in, internally mm -hmm. quite connected. And they interact. Yeah, right? but that's, what, that's a version yeah. of self but that you think is getting fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's fine. That's well, fine. Yeah, if you want to call that the self, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but this is getting the nub of the issue, which I was a little bit concerned was drifting away from us and yeah. uh, making it look as if we were all agreed, <laughs> I, I, which I, it doesn't seem to me what is going on. The, 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 the idea that we're as a collection of mental events, mm -hmm. well, that's very different from the idea of there being a self. The, the, the <laughs> well, uh, the, there is, it, because it, the, to say there's a, a collection of mental events makes it look as if uh, they are randomly connected. As you say, the, the, uh, the, the table is a collection of atoms or, or quarks or whatever you want to have, but it isn't held together. It could be somehow different, but surely the point of, for those on the self side of this argument is that there's something about experience which is indeed unitary. You, know, you are mm. having the experience now. Mm. You know, it's, it's this experience. It's not you know, a bit of something and a bit of something else. It's, mm. it's your experience. Mm. Right. Well, but I mean, the, the table here is also not just random, exactly. random gunk yeah. of matter. That is, it has a specific structure. But, it, but it's not held together. Well, yeah, it I, I mean, otherwise that thing would go right through, right? No, or no, if no, that, no, if that is not no, held together. No, no, no it's, yeah? it's not. It's not held together as the table. You know, it, it's, it's held together <laughs> as you know a surface, as a combination of. But there are all sorts of other ways we could describe it. Right. But the point about the self is the self yeah. does fe seem different, doesn't it? In that, yes. in that we have the experience yes. of. It being unitary, you know, at the moment mm. you are having an experience in the sense that it's just one thing for mm. you. The experience mm. is a thing, mm. while the table isn't like one thing. It's got lots of bits to it. And what if, I mean, the the so, idea of the sort of, you know, this kind of bundle, what does that do to ideas of acting in the world and free will and sort of having volition, the Sartre idea that you know, I know. I, you know, the purpose in a way, the thing that redeems my existence is I know what I actually want to do. I can say I am enough of a, a, an eye, of a vantage point mm. to make choices about what I do, what I want to select from this kind of enormous array of things around me. Uh, and what, what does it do uh, if you're uh, a kind of... A system can have agents. A system thing. can do things. I mean, I think this, again, there's no fundamental... Uh, problem with that. I mean, who, who, who has the belief that the, uh, it's, it's only possible to meaningfully talk of any kind of entity, entity acting or choosing if that entity is a singular, indivisible, unified thing? That'd be, a, that'd be an, a very odd assumption. I don't see any problem at all with accepting the fact that whatever the self is, it is a system. I mean, bundles a bit of, you know, makes it sound more random. Than it is. It's an organized system, right, of parts which aren't always in harmony, which from the from the inside as well, it seems to be more, more unified than it is, it acts as a system. Now, I mean, there may be difficulties in passing exactly how that's possible or various questions that arise out of that, but as a fundamental proposition, I don't see how anyone has a problem with that. And I think, the Hillary, the way you keep asking that, it seems a bit odd to me. It seems to me you're, you're, you, you do seem to be trying to force us into these, I think, false polar opposites between either we have to accept the self is this unitary singular thing or we're left with just a kind of a random, arbitrary collection. I mean, that, that, that seems to me a false, a false mm. choice. Okay, Sylvia? I would 
just like to respond to that quickly. I think there is some, there is a genuine difference between thinking of entities in general and the self in particular in terms of an object, an entity, even indivisible or unitary, or in terms of a structure. I mean, this is a, this is a very fundamental distinction also in the philosophy of mathematics. I think about that a lot because I think um, we can actually shed a lot of light on these um, different philosophical debates by referring back to mathematics because we actually ask ourselves very similar questions about numbers, for example. In what sense can we say that numbers exist? Well, not in the physical sense whatsoever. So this was just a point about being, I, I think it's legitimate to try and be um, clear about if we're talking about objects or structures. But I wanted to say something more about experience because it, um, I said earlier that um, there is a, a certain type of knowledge, indexical knowledge, that seems to very clearly imply um, a sense of some, uh, a self of some sort. But specifically with experience, I think that there are very, Im very importantly, experience can help us or can lead to a point where we no longer see the self anymore. So in ordinary experiences, it seems to be around all the time, but there are extraordinary experiences where our sense of self seem, seems to vanish. And I think that actually raises very, very interesting philosophical questions. I'm thinking about, well, you could think about all kinds of things. You could think about drug-induced um, uh, uh, states of mind, think about ayahuasca, for example, or think about um, very strong aesthetic experiences or religious experiences, obviously. In there, it looks like the sense of self can disappear. And then that's actually an interesting question. What does that mean philosophically for the sense of self that I argued earlier is implied in, in ordinary experiences. That's really interesting because then later the self or a self comes back and kind of narrates that experience. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, yeah, it says yeah. what was happening when things went a bit awry was yeah. this. So then there's a kind of re-description or you know, kind of bring it back into this sense that it was an experience that could be put into language even mm -hmm. at the time it yeah. felt like it couldn't. Yes, yes. Do, do you think we can lose the self? Well, I mean, I mean so people have experiences where they claim that's exactly what, what happens. Um, I'm not, I, 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 it's very difficult to sort of say exactly what happens. I think one of the interesting things, though, is that I think that, you know, what it, when you actually dig down and start to analyse phenomenologically what is going on with the experience of being a self, you find it is far from simple. It is multifaceted. And what a lot of pathologies do in, like, heightened experience and drug experience is that Things which are normally part of one's experience of being a self change or, or alter. Um, in order to have any experience at all, there has to be some sense of I, right? There has to be some sense of self. But it can become disassociated. So, for example, there are people who, um, this Cotard syndrome, where people believe they don't exist, which is logically contradictory. So they have, in some sense, they continue to have experienced themselves as a locus of experience, but that's become detached from a kind of a, um, a meta-judgment that their self is real. So I, I think that what these different experiences show is not that, as it were, self can, can vanish completely, self vanishes completely at death, but that our experience of what it means to be a self is much more sort of like got many different elements and components to it, and that many of them are detachable in ways that we would not believe from our everyday unreflective experience. Just to come, before we go to the audience, one of the questions is that in the talk of the uh, illusion of the self, are there practical consequences for our everyday understanding of things like responsibility, morality, freedom? Um, 
are these are these in any way problematic for those people who do at least appear to be denying the self? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joanne. I mean, if you don't know yourself, how do you determine that you will act or not act, that you will do anything? And also those kind of experiments like the Libet experiments that sort of say, well, you're just again being controlled by your brain the moment where you decide to do something that's just... Again, we get back into, well, who's the brain? Why does it want us to pick up this thing or raise our hands? But also those further questions of, again, this sort of intermediation, it's a bit like with psychoanalysis, where you're told things you think about yourself are not real, and there's a further reality you need a kind of expert to help you get to. I just think that aspect, it's incredibly, um, it leads to a sort of lassitude of the self, in a sense, because you think there's some further reality that I don't understand at all that someone else needs to help me to discern. But you have, you have, you are you and you're here and you're having this experience. I think sort of two sentence answers. I think that just as I think if you think seriously about the self, you give up a naive, simplistic view of the self, one which is more sophisticated and complex. What goes along with that is you give up naive, simplistic ideas about free will and responsibility. But just as you can understand the self, in a way which is more complex but still determines its reality. I think the upshot is you can still hold on to what's important about free will and responsibility. It's just not going to look like that very naive, simplistic view that I choose what I do and I am completely responsible and it all starts with me and it's, it's, and, and, and it's as straightforward as that. So that's, that's the headline. Yeah. Right, well, I think it's on, on the one hand, you might say, okay, so how can, you, how can you possibly act if you don't have a self? But on the other hand, you might also say, you know, your, your possibilities and uh, um, uh, abilities to act increase the less important you think yourself is. Because if you think, you know, being you means having a specific essence and that determines how you act, um, of course, that constrains the amount of actions that you can actually carry out. So if you actually think that, look, the, 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 um, that causal complex that we might, uh, for better better word, call a self, is actually something that has no essential essence, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, sp a process that changes and that, that can, be, can be influenced by ourselves and by other people. Then the amount of actions that you can carry out in relation to that is larger than what you could do otherwise. So in that case, you might, might think your freedom increases, the less important you think this essential soul talent actually is. But, uh, and morality and, mm. and responsibility. I mean, are, are, mm. do, if, you, if, you, if there isn't self, mm. are you able to have yeah. Are we able to hold people responsible for mm. their actions? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, I think the, 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 the real issue with morality arises if you think there are no other minds, right? Because then you think, okay, so if everybody else is just some sort of figment of my imagination, how does it matter how I ethically treat them, right? But if I assume there are actually, you know, there, there are other minds independent of me out there, um, even though they, they are not substantial entities, but they are sort of the structural flows that are in intrinsically connected, then all, all the reason that we would otherwise have for morality and treating, treating other, other beings in an ethical manner and, and so on, they still hold. It's not that they suddenly vanish if we, if we assume that selves are not substantial. Maybe that's not, not entirely apparent to me. Yeah. You say they well, don't vanish, but if yeah. there isn't a self, in what sense is there responsibility for an action if, if there isn't something that's somehow causing the action? In what sense is there a oh, responsibility there? Oh, if they, it's yeah. a flow mm. of processes or you know, linked stuff, in, in, mm. in, 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 mm. how can you find somebody guilty of something if, they're just the out, if their action was the outcome of this flow? Now the, the, the system, in the same kind of way that you can hold corporations and governments responsible as well as individuals, if, we are, if, we, if our essence is not a unified single thing, but is, is uh, what I am is, in a sense, a complex system, 
you can hold the system to account for what it is. Just not in that naive, stupid way which claims that, you know, you, you are entirely responsible for who you are and it's got nothing to do with your upbringing and it's got nothing to do with your genes and you are entirely capable of determining your own choice. That naive view goes out the window, but no, not holding to account. It's how we, it's, we have to hold each other to account because um, partly, you know, for, for good social reasons, but that's, that's sorry, I'm gonna go down a different road. Which will be I guess there, exactly, I mean, you've, it's absolutely right. There are two, you know, as with everything, there are these polarities that you would call the naive view, perhaps the, mm. the view that, you know, you're absolutely incapable of any form of volition whatsoever. Yeah. And then the view that, you know, you're this completely discrete entity that has no influence mm. coming into it from the world beyond. I mean, these will both, both be extremely difficult mm. to maintain positions. And as ever, we exist in this fascinating, murky, mm interim zone which is this mm. complex reality that we're all trying to somehow inhabit yeah yeah and if you try and describe that you're often accused of being vague or obfuscating but then because people prefer the nice simple polar opposites a lot of the time i'm afraid well that that sounds like a good topic for a future debate <laughs> um so i'd like to thank uh, all of our speakers for a fascinating uh, conversation here many thanks for coming along thanks so much for listening to this episode of philosophy for our times the podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Julian Bagini, Sylvia Jonas, Jan Westerhoff, and Joanna Kavanagh. Now you've listened to the episode, please do remember to go to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Tell anyone you know that might be interested, and if you want to check out new updates from Flossy for Our Times, then head over to our website at www.iai.tv podcast. Please do join us next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.